0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I've got most of my fellow regulatory team colleagues with me this week. We have senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, executive editor Nielsen Hobbs, and senior editors Brenda Sandberg and Sue Sutter. We marked the one-year anniversary of the official declaration of the COVID-19 pandemic this week, a date I think we all hoped we would remember as we would would revisit having already beat the virus. In the podcast, in the podcast that we published exactly one year ago today, March 12th, I said, I think it's safe to say daily life will be uprooted for a while as we began to adapt to work from home orders and prepare, and prepared for school closures. At that time, we wondered how the FDA would handle facility inspections, agency officials had postponed them, as well as how it, would, how it would continue having public meetings. Many of them also were canceled a year ago at this time. In fact, I don't think at that time any of us presumed we would still be talking about all these issues a year later. But while we continue waiting for life to return to normal, we're going to take a look back at how the FDA adapted to fight the pandemic and how it will impact it going forward. Among the biggest regulatory moves inspired by the pandemic was the FDA's use of the emergency use authorization process to make diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines available much faster than normal. Sue, you took a look at the agency's experience, both the good and the bad.
1: Yeah, so the agency certainly has flexed its muscle on using uh, its EUA authority for drugs and vaccines. Um, In the one year period from the time the WHO declared a pandemic, the FDA granted 10 EUA requests for drugs, either COVID treatments or supportive care agents, and three for vaccines. And it wasted no time in its reviews of those products. Um, All of them were reviewed in fewer than 90 days, and more than half of them cleared the agency in less than a month after submission. Uh, Requests submitted by the federal government boasted two of the three shortest review times. Those were for hydroxychloroquine chloroquine and for convalescent plasma. However, those were perhaps also the most problematic of all the requests. The uh, HCQ EUA was uh, notably revoked several months later due to both lack of efficacy and safety, and the convalescent plasma EUA was narrowed uh, just a few months ago as more data became available.
2: Uh, fascinating, uh, Sue. This is uh, – a uh, Sue's story is part of our Pandemic Perspective uh, series that we've been running uh, this week, and we'll have some more uh, pieces next, next week, just sort of looking at the uh, uh, year and anniversary of the uh, – COVID pandemic. And uh, um, Sue, so I was uh, struck by that uh, um, observation that sort of kind of that the uh, the faster FDA uh, went at times, or kind of the, uh, the um, more likely it was that they had to sort of kind of a, a change course. Uh, uh, later, I mean, is that sort of kind of how the EUA's are kind of uh, supposed to work? That's where kind of they, uh, they allow for the speed and uh, course correction as a uh, former uh, Commissioner uh, Stephen Hahn said?
1: Well, exactly. That was, that was the view that Han had expressed. And I think they certainly have, you know, followed that route. I, I think uh, particularly so. They, they view that as justified in the face of, of this pandemic and the, you know, the growing caseload over the months. They felt like, you know, numerous times I've heard FDA officials say, we need to do basically whatever we can here. And um, you know, it's a fairly low bar for an EUA in terms of the amount of evidence, you know, the evidentiary threshold relative to, say, an NDA or a BLA. So I think they've been um, very flexible in that respect.
0: are we reaching the point now though, maybe going forward that it's not, you know, we won't see, we'll see a little more kind of careful or maybe measured thinking about some of the, you know, additional EUAs just because we've got some tools in the toolbox we've got some vaccines out there now and so there isn't like this urgency to have some kind of treatment for uh, you know for this
3: I would argue on the treatment side there's still a lot of urgency because what we have available either you know um, it's OK. I mean, I think remdesivir, you know, well, that's not an EUA anymore. You know, it's 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 OK, but it's not a, you know, a home run um, convalescent plasma. I think there's questions. Um, some people question whether that EUA might eventually get pulled altogether. Um, and there's the um, monoclonal antibodies um, are helpful as well, but they've been really hard to for people to kind of. Access there's a lot of logistical kind of hurdles to getting and administering those drugs. So, um, on the therapeutic space, I think there's there definitely be a lot of um, clamoring for kind of any kind of antiviral, any kind of easy to take medicine that could really keep people out of the hospital and so forth. So, um, I don't know. I think and even on the testing front, there's been a lot of pushes for you know more. Um, um you know like at home um rapid tests and things so i think we're still going to be um dealing with this pathway for a while um
0: sorry i wasn't i wasn't trying to think that there wouldn't be we wouldn't use the pathway I mean, but my yeah. thinking i was wondering if you know like i mean you can we can argue for days on the hcq you know uh, <laughs> e way, but um that it was done at a time when we knew nothing about, we knew very little about the virus, we knew almost nothing about how to treat it, and they were just, you know, I mean, I, you and I both remember reading the studies would just come out, like, you know, oh, we, you know, we did, we did a, we looked at 25 people and gave them this, and a few of them got better, and, you know, it, and it was like, oh, okay maybe that's an option and they, they they literally didn't have a whole lot of ways to treat this so they were trying to get ideas you know or uh, you know something out there just to give physicians you know uh you know some kind of tools you know to to deal with this while well, they kind of figured out how everything was going i'm just curious if now that we kind of we have a better sense of how to treat the disease and how to you know even if you're hospitalized they have a better idea of you know of, you know, h- how best to handle this. I'm curious if, you know, do we need to go at like hyper speed to get, you know, stuff on the market, you know, and get stuff available now in an EUA situation?
1: I think it also depends on how quickly some of these these EUA products go through the NDA or BLA process, because right now the only available therapy for treatment is, is uh, remdesivir, because anything under EUA is not considered available therapy, is my understanding. So, you know, if you start seeing a lot of these going through BLA licensure or NDA licensure, you know, FDA might be less inclined to use the EUA
3: process. I think, Derek, to your point of kind of, right, does FDA sort of maybe take a deep breath and slow down? To me, that seems like a bit more um, a factor potentially of like kind of the political, um, you know, atmosphere and the direction that FDA is getting, given we know there was so much sort of political pressure on FDA with HCQ, with plasma and so forth. So I think if there's a shift now, it may be perhaps partially due to kind of where we are with the pandemic and the urgency, but I could also see it just being due to kind of if the Biden administration is sort of giving FDA a little bit more, um, freedom or taking a hands-off approach to letting them kind of be a little bit more reflective of the science before they make a decision, um, because we sort of know, um, the Trump administration pushed FDA to some degree to act kind of faster than they would have before.
2: Yeah, I think you can certainly see that in those, uh, those two government-sponsored uh, EUAs that uh, Sue uh, flagged as were kind of the, uh, the most rapid and perhaps the most uh, um, uh, revisited uh, ones that, uh, are, are uh, or you know, among the most rapid and most revisited ones that uh, um, the agency has done so far. Yeah, you
0: know, yeah. You know, we also saw. You know, get this kind of plays off the the you know the the idea with treatments. We we also saw clinical trial innovations inspired. Mainly because they were required, um, because uh, you know the, the pandemic, basic, you know, the lockdowns and so forth, you know, prevented clinic visits. They prevented people from going to hospitals if they weren't, you know, if they if they weren't sick and and so forth. So, uh, one uh, another thing we saw, you know, what be, we're we're seeing now that you know we're kind of you know maybe getting ready to come out of this is what what kinds of pandemic-inspired innovations do we retain? when we don't have to have them anymore and uh, you know so things like remote monitoring decentralized clinical trials designs are all of a sudden really popular because they're wor- you know people view them as you know as working and and, and beneficial and uh, one of, one of the things we've we've st- we've seen now is there's a fear among potentially among you know a, a lot of people chris austin of the uh, the uh, the NIH's uh, National Center for uh, Advancing Translational Sciences said that he that he wants the rare disease community to to come out to come out and push back against efforts to kind of return to the pre-pandemic status quo because there's going to be a natural reaction to kind of forget about all this once the pandemic is over. I, uh, yeah, that that might be true. I I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just. Maybe, just because i I watch a lot of this stuff in real time, along with all of you, I, I don't think we're going to go completely back to the days where, you know remote monitoring is not a good idea or not something people want to approach, and you know where like you know decentralized designs are kind of an exception rather than the norm and so forth. I, th- I think I think that's pretty well going to be integrated going forward. Maybe I don't know. maybe it's maybe that's just me.
2: I, I think you're right, Derek. that sort of kind of that uh, to the extent that they uh, offer cost savings and perhaps a uh, um, an easier way to create uh, recruit a, a diverse uh, uh, field of uh, trial participants. I think people are going to uh, embrace that. I think a lot of it's going to depend on how this uh, first generation of trials fares in review. Obviously, sort of kind of the trials conducted during the pandemic are going to have uh, all sorts of issues that we written about with sort of potentially missing and interrupted data and um, all those kinds of things. So they're not gonna be sort of, kind of the uh, the best case scenarios for testing out for kind of how these studies are uh, um, assessed by FDA. But, uh, you know, if all the trials that uh, um, were conducted during the pandemic, uh, you know, with these sort of, kind of new, uh, um, relatively uh, uh, novel approaches, uh, um, you know, are poorly received, that's where kind of might push industry in a new direction uh, afterwards. Whereas if uh, they also kind of uh, fly through, I think you'll uh, see that, uh, even accelerate in terms of of the different approaches to uh, to trial conduct.
0: Yeah, certainly the you know one of the things looking forward to you know that uh, you know we'll be watching. Um, Brenda, you profiled Paul Offit, who is a physician and researcher who became uh, much more famous as a commentator on vaccine development and policy over the past several months. Uh, you know, what, what did you learn from the, from the from all that research?
4: Well, I wanted to get his insights on the lessons learned from the pandemic and, you know, worries going forward. And I did, but I also wanted to convey uh, about the story about his life and, and and the work he's done. And I read two of his books when I wrote a story in October on what came before COVID-19, two centuries of vaccine development. And they were so amazing, compelling uh, narratives. One was about the cutter incident and exactly how, it came about that children um, in, in, inoculated with the sock vaccine became paralyzed, and um, and ten died, and a hundred, and 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 many were paralyzed for f- permanently. But it, the book was um, c- c- really conveyed a lot of, of 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 the his the total history of the polio vaccine, and so when I when I interviewed him, he he has these fascinating details that are kind of buried in history that people are unaware of exactly how this came about, which he said it was like the biggest biological disaster in U S history. And he explains in his book exactly what went wrong to make, make, that happen. It was a seven year research project and a lot of experts that he talked to, they just didn't answer his questions. So he found this hidden document, um, called the wyeth problem and he said it was the rosetta stone for his book really he found out that it was a scale-up problem so that's kind of there isn't that kind of problem with with um with the 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 covid vaccines of course because there's no live virus in them but he, he he like explained how that was a lesson because you have to be very careful when you move to um to large scale up but um I I really think that it's um you know extraordinary his whole career is very extraordinary he worked on the rotavirus vaccine with Stanley Plotkin and um Fred Clark and so we talked about that and that was 26 years (laughs) to come up with that vaccine versus the one year for the COVID vaccine um and so uh, yeah, it was just really amazing to talk to him to get his perspectives on, you know, one thing he said um, that the this COVID vaccine research would do, the va- development vaccines for COVID would lead to vaccines being tested in pregnant women, which, you know, has is just not done. Um, and he, he said that that was a door that would be opened. And, and that really recall to mind the book he wrote about the biography he wrote about maurice Hilleman. um and there's a chapter there called eight doors and it talks about eight discoveries that enabled Hilleman to come up with them um, develop the mumps vaccine so it really um the, this the amazing experience he's had in in his life and how he became um a, a, a virologist and infectious disease specialist is, is really intriguing, and I just really highly recommend that people read both both his books about the Cutter incident and um, the, the biography of Hilleman, which goes over the, all these amazing details, hidden details about the pharmaceutical industry and vaccine development. Well, not hidden, but just like not, not well known among people who aren't in the vaccine field.
2: Well, Brenda, I would uh, add your story to among the... Uh... <laughs> Well-written things that uh, people should uh, um, should read, and I was uh, uh, struck by his uh, um, observation about uh, you know including uh, uh, pregnant women in the study of uh, clinical trials, and uh, you know just like we were talking about earlier about sort of trial design approaches and uh, um, you know decentralized uh, studies and stuff. You know, this is not something that was kind sort of made possible by um, technology advances, and obviously it sort of, kind of hasn't. Uh, um, you know, sort of kind of uh, gotten off the ground quite the same way, but it's just, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a policy decision that people were sort of kind of made, you know, sort of kind of in the face of this uh, pandemic and sort of kind of it's a, it's funny how uh, um, the, you know, things that were sort of kind of, you know, uh, a decade hence kind of could seem absolutely normal sort of just sort of were, were pushed by, uh, um, by this pandemic, uh, um, even though there's nothing about the pandemic per se that would sort of, kind of require, uh, require it to be done.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. I was going to mention that, too, Matt. I mean, it's really extraordinary that, you know, that that this is this could be the, the trigger to, you know, to study vaccines in pregnant women. I mean, like you said, I mean, you just don't see that at all for, you know, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, the fact that there that it's being talked about now is it's just, you know, is just you know really surprising. So
3: well, it's interesting you have. Um FDA, or I guess it's actually a CDC registry, really, but one of the um, pharmacovigilance systems um, being used with COVID um, has already, like, enrolled, I think, close to 2,000 people, pregnant women in their registry and have, you know, been able to track outcomes of births and so forth. And so far, you know, everything looks reassuring. Um, and I think, you um, this is a case where p- pregnant women are known to be at higher risk of COVID and you're putting people, we know, you can see from the real world evidence that people are going to t- end up feeling like we even without the study, they maybe the risk benefit balance is in their favor. So you start to sort of question what is the sort of, what's the ethical sort of reasoning to exclude them from trials if at the end of the day, um, the general recommendation, which is my understanding, has been kind of for pregnant women is, yes, it's sort of up to you and your doctor, but it seems like most of the guidance um, I've spread that women are getting is that they probably should, it they, they would be wise for them to potentially consider getting it. So you start to question why we're excluding them from trials if at the end of the day we're going to then recommend they make a more sort of risky decision of taking it without the, that data.
4: I, I happen to cover... The Duke Margolis um, meeting uh, uh, last month about um, use of having pregnant women in clinical trials—not just vaccine trials, but just in trials generally—and there was a lot of discussion about this is a huge hurdle to get pregnant women in trials, um, and there, there's liability concerns. Or the industry has been, you know, reluctant to do that. Um, it costs more. I mean, they went over like, you know, hurdles to do that, but. And then talked about, well, how how to actually overcome that. So women are in trials. And one one um, recommendation that came out of it was actually requiring sponsors or investigators to s- specify why they excluded women from pregnant women from trials. And if they if they had to do that, it might encourage them to to, you know, actually make the effort to to include them.
1: I do worry about the pendulum swinging too far the other way, though, not so much in the context of the COVID vaccines, but but sort of future lessons from this. And that if it becomes, you know, just too normal, too easy to enroll pregnant women, that, you know, there may become issues, safety issues that we didn't know about. And, you know, you find out about those in, a, in just a terrible way in terms of the effects on pregnancy and and the baby in utero so you know i'm sure fda will always require dart studies development and reproductive tox studies but i do worry about things shifting too much maybe that's just sort of my personal view
2: no it's a good uh, a good caution too and obviously sort of kind of the uh, uh the splinamide incidents were created what uh, many of us think of as the uh the modern FDA uh, regulatory approach, and uh, obviously, it's a uh, um, you know it's a, it's a crucial issue to get those uh,
0: safety issues right. Yep, definitely. Well, finally, today in a piece of non-COVID news, we continue to wait for President Biden to nominate an FDA commissioner. I know you're all waiting with bated breath for the name, and it seems like so are several former FDA commissioners. Six of them wrote to Biden on March 9th asking that he make a pick. They specifically said that Act, Acting Commissioner Janet Woodcock and the career staff were doing a fine job, but added that to advance the agency's mission, it needs to he needs to make a permanent he needs to put a permanent leader in White Oak. Mid March is about the time that Scott Gottlieb and Margaret Hamburg were nominated by then incoming president or new presidents Trump and Obama. But this letter gives the impression that we could be waiting a while. So, do you all think that this is kind of uh, you know we we still got a few weeks to go or months to go before we find out?
3: <laughs> it's, it's really hard to be in that um, you know prediction game um one thing I think we've noted is um this week um or yesterday actually you know the senate basically advanced um Javier Becerra's nomination to lead the department of health and human services he um he's still um needs, you know, a sort of a final vote to be um, put in place, but the, you, you sort of can generally take from the vote that was held yesterday that he will get confirmed. So it's possible that may help speed things up if the Biden folks were kind of waiting to make sure he was confirmed, so they could give him some amount of, you know, say in, um, who is in that role um, or give him a chance to maybe talk with Woodcock or anyone else they're considering because my understanding is there's been sort of like a strict um, wall between that during these this process. Um, We also know I think Brenda has written a bit about this um, because of Woodcock's unique um, position right now being in the acting commissioner spot there's more um, logistics around When she could officially be nominated, Um, so that could impact the decision. Although I think they could like sort of informally let us know who they were going to pick without going through the formal process. If that has to wait, Um, but um, you know, it it seems like um, I'm not clear anything has shifted. But it seems like you know the Biden folks had had gotten some pushback from Woodcock as they were leaning towards her, but and so they've sort of looked at like who else they might want to nominate, um, but they haven't necessarily found anyone. So the question is, you know, do they move forward with Woodcock and um, deal with some potential democratic opposition in the Senate um, and maybe anger a few people in their own parties um, or not? The, the other thing I think um, about your piece which is interesting is you know they sort of these former commissioners push for a nomination they um sort of are complementary of woodcock but they don't quite go to the point of saying nominator <laughs>
4: um
3: so that's kind of interesting obviously i think you're listening to some of those same folks speak later today so we see if we get anything more out of them of their thinking on that front
2: yeah i think this uh, contrasts to uh, a little bit to the um the letter that was sent uh, um, uh, uh, towards the uh, the last uh, towards the end of the last uh, uh, you know uh, nomination uh, period, I believe they did. Uh, I'm trying to pull up the uh, the story now, but I believe the the commissioners did in fact uh, endorse Ned Sharpless, and uh, um, uh, you know he didn't end up getting the uh, the pick for the nomination, but it was a little uh, a little more full throated that uh, um, that time. So uh, um, that distinction is a, is, a, is an interesting one, uh, Sarah
1: yeah i thought thought you could also read the commissioner the former commissioner's letter is not formally endorsing anyone but also not saying that janet woodcock shouldn't be the commissioner
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was yeah and, and so i remember you bringing that to my attention because i i immediately read it kind of the way sarah was talking about it but then yeah thinking about it for a while you start to think like well they have to be careful in saying, like, you can say nominate somebody, but we don't want you to nominate somebody because we're displeased with how things are right now. Right. So yeah, it, it's it, it's it's a really kind of delicate balance they were trying to strike with with that.
3: <laughs> yeah, I also think the Sharpless situation was a bit different. I'm forgetting all the details of when that letter came out and whether Han or other people's names were also floated at the time, but I think the Trump administration obviously had a bit more of a history of floating candidates for FDA commissioner that um, former commissioners that people, you know, really invested in the FDA had found problematic. So they might have felt more of a urgency to put their name on someone versus right now if these former commissioners don't know who else Biden is considering they might not want to like back one candidate and have that then be seen as them being opposed to other people who they don't even know and they may actually feel as qualified so it could be just also again like sort of a matter of they're being cautious because they don't quite know everybody who's in the race. So they don't, they're not, they wouldn't want to like endorse one person over the, (laughs) over others. And versus, again, I think the Trump dynamics was, um, I think, always much more like um, fraught in some ways for FDA supporters, because there was both before he nominated Scott Gottlieb, and then once Gottlieb left, and there was an an opening again, I think there was a lot of concern Trump was kind of going to nominate somebody that really like did not believe in the U.S. drug approval process and what's going to completely deregulate um, this space.
2: Right. The, uh, the now uh, the current circumstances are that the uh, the ex commissioners, if we can sort of speak of them as a uh, as a unit, although it's sort of kind of a, a changing group from uh, from time to time, is uh, um, they, uh, that they uh, that um, uh, they they have enough confidence in the Biden administration that they don't want us to kind of. Uh, um, you know, to kind of just to kind of offer a choice, but they don't have enough confidence that the the Biden administration is moving fast enough, so they need to be able to speak publicly. It's for kind of this uh through an odd dynamic there, but that's a great uh, observation, Sarah.
0: Well, and it, it, oh, sorry, go ahead, Sarah.
3: Oh, I mean, well, no, Derek, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I was I was going to say, I mean, the the other interesting, you know. kind of odd situation we're in here this if you want to call it limbo i don't know but um because janet is dr woodcock is the only person whose name we know is kind of out there they that's put the target on her back for all the opponents who you know who don't who aren't sure she should be the commissioner so you know you've seen a lot of groups come out and and, you know we've talked about this on this podcast before that, that saying that you know she you know, pointing out all these various, uh, you know, issues that they have with FDA policy and how uh, Dr. Woodcock was at the helm of Cedar when a lot of this stuff was happening and and how she can't be the commissioner because of that. And, um, you know, one of the things that may come up, you know, going forward, both on for, for those groups, as well as even groups that are, uh, you know, that would like to see her, be, you know, become the permanent commissioner is, is the the use of accelerated approval and, and, and um, you know we saw some developments with that this week. Sue, you wrote a really interesting piece uh, today. It turns out about how um, there's going to be uh, an advisory committee to, to, uh, to look at um, you know the, some of the, some of these accelerated approvals that had been given and whether or not they should st- they should remain in place and you know kind of the this is kind of fueling this uh, you know kind of re re this kind of re looking at the accelerated approval process as a whole.
1: It, well, it is re-looking at the accelerated approval process, but right now it's just in the context of this category of cancer immunotherapies. Uh, some of the critics that I talked to yesterday, people who have been critical of, the, of FDA's use of the accelerated approval process, said it really needs to be a broader review than just for the checkpoint inhibitors. And um You know, one thing about Janet Woodcock in terms of accelerated approval is, yes, there was a lot of use of that while she was heading up CEDAR, and she's the one who went ahead and and granted accelerated approval of Sarepta's at Teplerson, you know, famously. But also, she was head of CEDAR when CEDAR wanted to revoke the breast cancer indication for Avastin. So she was definitely, um, you know, on the other side of accelerated approval in that sense and that they didn't show their clinical benefit in the post-approval trials, and she was one of the ones who pushed to have it taken off the label.
0: Yeah, it's a, you know, it's an interesting, you know, dynamic here, you know, how you could find, and this isn't, this isn't unique to the FDA commissioner, but, you know, you could find, you could find things, you know, on both sides of, you know, the ledger that you, you know, that, you know, you could use both for and against, you know, pretty much anybody at this point, especially someone like Dr. Woodcock, who has a long, you know, long, had a long career, you know, at the FDA and in the drug approval process in general, so.
1: She certainly has been an advocate for using regulatory flexibility, uh, particularly in the context of rare diseases. And so and certainly accelerated approval does provide the agency with a lot of flexibility. So
3: I think it's a matter of when you draw back on that flexibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
3: I think WCAG is, is, like you mentioned, with this target on her back. I mean, she is in a very difficult place because having – On the one hand, she has this wealth of experience at FDA, and on the other hand, that's exactly what makes her a target because people can start picking at, you know, all of these decisions from her time. And I think it's it's very easy to sort of pick out where things maybe didn't go as people would have liked, Um, and it's easier to sort of um, figure out how to balance that with all of the other decisions that seemingly maybe sort of fly under the radar because people don't have problems with it. So it's hard to sort of, um, think about like how you weigh, you know, the sort of span of somebody's vast career at FDA. And also again, in her position and many times she has been in senior leadership positions, but it's sometimes hard to figure out like how much of a role would she have had in some of the particular policy decisions, um, that people are criticizing, what is her level of responsibility, um, and so forth. And I know, like, people who are really hoping Wicca gets the role do feel like, um, if nothing else, it's a little bit unfair of the Biden, um, folks not to kind of end this, you know, like, limbo stage or whatever you call it, because, again, they feel like, you know, she is being dragged through the mud in a way that's maybe, um, not quite fair. So they should sort of either, you know, (laughs) go with her or kind of put her out of this kind of um, position where she is sort of just a constant target um, for her critics. And this does seem, I mean, I know like there was opposition to Caleb. There are people that were not thrilled with Scott Gottlieb and saw him um, as too close to industry, but this does feel a bit more intense in a way than other FDA commissioner um, nomination, um, prospects that I've followed.
2: Yeah, it is, a uh, um, surprisingly personal sort of the, uh, the sort of kind of the, uh, the, uh, the critique of sort of, kind of uh, why, uh, um, uh, Woodcock couldn't become uh, commissioner. Obviously, this is not her first rodeo. Uh, you know, it is sort of kind of an unpleasant way to start what would be sort of kind of, the, you know, the captain, capton achievement of her career, but she's, you know, faced congressional criticism. She's one of those sort of kind of you know, FDA is sort of, I think best advocates on the Hill when she sort of kind of uh, does have to testify, if sort of something goes wrong, or there's sort of kind of uh, political pressure. Um, it is uh, um, you know n- noteworthy that kind sort of you know it, whatever you think about the uh, um, FDA's opioid policies, they they are limited by the law. That's sort of kind of the, you know if a uh, you know a sponsor brings them uh, data that shows uh, um, you know that it meets the clinical endpoint and uh, um, you know, the, the safety uh, information in the trial is, the, uh, um, is adequate, they have to approve it. And, you know, you could argue that sort of FDA should take maybe a more expansive view of that or uh, or what have you, but, uh, you know, you can also see that uh, um, idea of being challenged in court uh, you know, given the uh, established precedent. So, uh, um, you know, I think uh, the, the opioid criticism sort of maybe sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, aspirational in terms of sort of kind of what uh, the agency could have done uh, um, to uh, to change the scope of, uh, um, the use of these products as opposed to just for kind of that they didn't pull the right leverage that they had at their disposal.
0: Well and and just like you know Sarah said and we saw this with with um, when Scott Gottlieb's name was 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 put into nomination I mean the the chief complaint with with Dr. Gottlieb was that he was going to you know that he potentially could meddle in reviews and you know approve a lot of stuff that maybe wasn't ready to be approved yet and you know, people close to the, who understood FDA operations said that, you know, the commissioner doesn't have time to deal with, you know, to, you know, stick his, you know, his nose into day-to-day review, typical review operations. I mean, he may get briefed on it at the end, but he's not going to, you know, he's not going to, he just won't, he that there's too much on his plate to be able to deal with something like that. And, you know, to a certain extent, you know, Dr. Woodcock is more, as head of Cedar, was more in, closely involved in a lot of the reviews. But there's so much, there's so many applications moving through that center on a day-to-day basis that you know, you know, if she wanted to pick out, you know, I mean, the Atapuerca incident is a, it is a notable exception to that. But it, you know, if, I I don't think I don't think anyone realistic, realistically, realistically believes that if she that she could really direct the review of every single new drug that came through there, you know, in a way that, you know, that she wanted. I mean, she's talked about having, you know, like 10, 12 meetings a day. I mean, you know, in an eight hour day, I mean, you know, I I don't, you know, people wonder how she, when she sleeps, I, I, you know, at this point, I don't, I don't know how she could possibly have time to, you know, kind of worry about all that stuff that hundreds and hundreds of people are doing on a day-to-day basis.
3: Right I think for like the critics though, of Woodcock, um I think a lot of them do understand that, right. She wouldn't be um, probably like, most likely she's not going to be weighing in on like some of the potentially most controversial decisions FDA has come up, like, um, there's the Alzheimer's drug under review, which I think is going to be very closely looked at. But she would have sort of that p- perhaps philosophical <laughs> ability to kind of, you know spearhead the direction fda goes like does she keep push does she sort of make um review of accelerated approval into something broader than just the this group of pd1 um you know inhibitors mm-hmm. um does she sort of right push or advocate or in some way work with congress to kind of say look if you want us to address the opioid you know prices, we need to think about how we could sort of somehow like adjust the approval standards for these types of medicines. Um, I think Gottlieb talked a bit about this, maybe some work was done to allow FDA to kind of think about the broader public health situation, not just like that individual patient risk benefit balance. So I think there is, right, I I think like some of the things people worry about, yes, the commissioner is supposed to be hands off them. But there would certainly be sort of a philosophical way What the COC could you know, have a way. In, and then that's where when people thought Josh Sharfstein was more of a candidate for the commissioner, I feel like people who were post Woodcock sort of were clinging to Sharfstein because he's seen as sort of having in some ways opposite philosophical, I think, thoughts from her as to kind of how much you engage with industry or, um, China trade-offs of moving fast or slow or transparent and on I think transparency they have very different um opinions as well so I think that's where you know the the specifics that Wukak was able to maybe have a role in when she was in CEDAR director that's how they see it translating to the kind of the commissioner role
0: yeah no that 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 make yeah you know, that make that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, it's something that we're going to have to sort out, you know, as we go forward and, and, you know, instead of the, you have to keep that context in mind as we've, as, as, you know, more of these accusations and, and complaints start, continue to fly as to, you know, what, you know, how, how the agency actually works in terms of, you know, how you, how you take a lot of that, a lot of those things. So. well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the PinkSheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingerie with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Nielsen Hobbs, Brenda Sandberg, and Sue Sutter. Stay, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.